0: Exodus chapter 15, beginning with verse 22. It says, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Merah, they could not drink the water of Merah, because it was bitter, therefore it was named Merah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statue and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all of his statutes, I will put on you none of the diseases that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. And they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. They set out from Elam, and all of the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, and on the 15th day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we saw that sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For, we have, for you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And in verse 12 it says, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them at twilight, you shall eat meat, and in the morning, you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay on the ground. And when the dew was gone up, there was in the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, "What is it? For that is not what they know it. For they did not know what it was." Moses said to them, It is the bread from the Lord. It is the bread that the Lord hath given to you to eat. Verse 35 says, The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years, till they came to a habitual land. And then they ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. In verse 1 of chapter 17, it says, All the congregation of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt? to kill us and to our children and our livestock with thirst. So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of of Israel, and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because they had been quarreling with the people, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Uh, Quick question. Uh, Anybody, I need you to be honest about this. Uh, Anybody grumble or complain this week? Did, did, did you grumble or complain this week? All right, without, without looking at another person in, in the building sitting next to you, have you been in a room with someone else who has complained or grumbled uh, at all this week? Anyone? Anyone? Okay, uh, let me ask you this question. If there is a, an individual who is the average complainer, I don't know if I've met them or not, but this is uh, the, the average complainer that of all the people on the planet. This person complains the average amount. Are you above that person or are you below that person? It could be like, you know, bad drivers. Well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a better than average driver. Listen, somebody out there on Morrison is a below average uh, driver. We, we can't all be above average. In this case, you know, when it comes to complaining, well, I don't complain as much as most people do. In fact, I know that you don't really complain, that, that what your situation is, is that you are gifted in accurately describing the environment in which you live in. That's, that's your gift. It's not complaining. It's just being accurate in your description of what's going on. Why do we have so much grumbling? If I had given a pre-quiz to the book of Exodus and I, and I were to list list three or four things that you're going to see in the book of Exodus, you, you would probably mention the, uh, the Ten Commandments. You would probably mention the plagues. You should probably mention the parting of the Red Sea. But, but if you had been in church very often, or if you would kind of studied Exodus at all, probably one of the things that you would list is that, boy, they sure do complain and grumble an awful lot in the book of Exodus. And In fact, sometimes when we study these passages of Scripture, people come to me and say, Pastor, why did they grumble so much? Why did they complain so much? It's interesting that in the Bible, the Hebrew word for grumble appears in six chapters in the Old Testament. We're looking at three of them. Right here, The other three are, are not too far off from uh, the chapters that we're looking at today. But as you read through this, particularly as you read there right there in the heart uh, of Exodus chapter 16, it's they grumbled and they grumbled and they came grumbling and they uh, grumbled. And in fact, as you read through it, they, they move from grumbling to quarreling to the point that Moses is afraid of a mob riot at the end that might even cost him his life. Man, why did they grumble so much? Why do they spend so much time grumbling and complaining? Don't they remember all of the miracles that they've seen? How is it that they could complain after all the things that they've witnessed and experienced and all the things that God has done for them? Why do they complain so much? Well, we're going to try to understand that a little bit this morning. And we're going to try to understand why they complained so much. But understand that every time that God preserves the story of somebody in Scripture, it's because He wants to speak to our story today. And so the fact that He has recorded this grumbling and this quarreling and this complaining, and He's put it here, and we read it and we look at it and say, Man, why did they complain so much? Why did they grumble so much? We're going to try to understand that. But at the same time, he does not intend for us to look at this and just look at Israelites. He wants to speak into my life today. And there's a real possibility that he wants to speak into your life today as well. So let's look at the passage this morning without grumbling if if we can do that. So let's think about this. What are we supposed to think about God and His Word based on this passage? Well, The first thing that I would want you to know is God wants us to be sympathetic. God wants us to be sympathetic to the challenges of this life. God wants us to be sympathetic to the challenges of this life. Now, why did the Israelites grumble so much? The reality is that there are some spiritual issues that need to be addressed about the Israelites complaining so much. But there's another part of the reason why the Israelites grumbled so much. It was hard. The place that they were in, the circumstances that they found themselves, their situation was hard. I asked our, our staff expert on camping, um, I said, Colby, what, what is the, the time frame when camping moves from being a recreational pursuit to being a crisis of homelessness? He said, five days. He said, five days, it is fun for five days. Day six, sun comes up, it's a problem. You got to get home. This is no longer an enjoyable pursuit anymore. This is a crisis to be fixed. When we read here in Exodus chapter 16, it tells us the people of God have been in the wilderness for six weeks. That's a lot of five day stretches. That is a long time since camping was fun. Mom, Dad, can we camp in the backyard? We want to sit under the stars. Great. Have fun. You know, most of us came in within 15 or 20 minutes uh, after that adventure sounded like a good idea. The Israelites have been out there for a really, really long time, and as they are out there, they are in the heat of the Sinai Peninsula. They are examining, they are examining the horizon that does not change in any way. They are feeling the pain and the sting of the sand as the storms blow it in their face. They are experiencing the reality of the lack of water. You all know that you cannot go more than three days without water. And this tells us that repeatedly, again and again, they come to places where there is no water. This is not my cable went out. This is there is no water. This is a situation where they are being pushed to the point that they don't know they can make it any longer. They come to places where there's water and they cannot drink it because it's bitter. They come to another place where there are 12 springs and 70 palm trees and then God says, let's leave. They're like, what? This is the best place we've ever been. God says, pick up and leave. They come to other places. They're like, man, All the snacks we packed are gone. We have nothing to eat. We have no meat. Moses, don't you understand? We need meat. We need bread. We need sustenance. When the Israelites complain and grumble, it's because life is hard. I don't want to trade places with any of them they are literally almost dying of thirst. I think somewhere, someplace, we got the idea that it's not spiritual to acknowledge that life is hard sometimes. We got this idea that says, if I'm really a person of faith, I can't ever state that something is hard or not right or hurtful or that I'm wounded or that I'm struggling. We've just got this idea that if you're really a person of faith, if you really believe in God, everything is, the Greek word is honky-dory. Everything is just fantastic. It's all coming up roses. It's great. I want you to know, that's the opposite of what Scripture tells us. In fact, if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve sin, and the world becomes broken, God speaks to them and says, listen, from this point on, the world is going to fight against you. He's not talking about the people who don't like you are going to fight against you. He says, no, everything that you do in life, the world is going, creation is going to push back against you. In fact, I will tell you that that one of the great heresies of our day, one of the great false teachings of our day, is the false teaching that says that if you will live right, pray right, and say the right words, then God will pour blessings all over your life. And you'll have nothing but wealth and success and happiness, and every one of your relationships will be blessed. And if you're not experiencing that, it's because you're not believing enough and you're not praying enough and you're not doing it in the right way or you're not using the right words. In fact, if you go to a Christian bookstore, there'll be a whole section of these are the words to pray so that you'll have the right blessings. Hogwash. It's not true. God became flesh and he dwelt among us. And he experienced hunger and he faced temptation. And he was betrayed. He was beaten. He was hung on a cross. This health, wealth, and prosperity. (laughs) He didn't get the memo. Every one of his followers experienced some degree of imprisonment, persecution, execution. These are the big hitters. These are the people who wrote the Bible. They knew how to pray right. In fact, they asked Jesus, teach us how to pray. They learned how to pray from Jesus. This idea that says because you're a follower of Jesus, because you have faith, you will not face adversity or difficulty. Well, it didn't come from the Word. It didn't come from the Word. He tells us that you are going to face adversity. He says it right up front. It's not the small print, it's the red print. It's right there for us to see. So what does this mean for us? Well, when we read this passage of Scripture, I want you to know that the Israelites had real struggle. I want us to ease up just a little bit. I was like, man, why were they such a whining bunch of people? Man, you don't want to trade places with them. They had real struggle. And when we read this passage of Scripture, I want you to know that you don't have to pretend that you don't have real struggle. In fact, we want this to be the kind of church that's a real church with real people that deals with real stuff, and it's okay to not be okay when you come and sit down in one of these seats and be part of this church family. There's not a row in this church where there isn't somebody who's limping, who isn't hurting, who isn't recovering, who isn't dealing with some darkness or some pain or some hurt in their life. There's not a single row in this church, and that's not abnormal, and it's not broken beyond the brokenness of this world. I also want you to know that if you're struggling and you're having a hard time, it's not because you're doing faith wrong. It's not because you haven't said the right things or believed in the right way. So I want us to grow as a people, but we learn how to give some people some slack. Some of the people on your row, some of the people in your house, some of the people at your workplace, some of the people at your school, some of the people in your lane. Give them some slack, man. You don't know what they're walking through, and even if you do know what you're walking through, you only see the top of it and you don't see the stuff beneath the surface man, we got to give some people some slack instead of just looking at people and saying, man, what are they whining about all the time? There's a real chance. It's real. that They are desperate for a cup of cold water. They are feeling the sting of the sand of the wilderness blowing on their face for week after week after week, looking at a horizon that seems to have no hope. Man, cut some people some slack. And then... I'd say to you, when you get dressed, get dressed for battle, get dressed for battle. We, we, we had the privilege of living for several years in Panama City, Florida, lots of great things about Panama City. It's not Panama City Beach, it's the, it's the other one, and the other one has got Tyndall Air Force Base. Man, we were so privileged to walk amongst that great Air Force community. Man, those folks in the Air Force and the other armed services, man, they got some great uniforms, don't they? I mean, they got those dress uniforms. I mean, they look fantastic. You know, officer and a gentleman kind of thing. I mean, the dress blues and all that. I mean, they look fantastic. But you never see them wearing that around town. Special occasions. Every day, they put on their fatigues. Because they weren't dressed for show. They were dressed for work. They were dressed to take on whatever came. You and I as believers in Christ who live in this world, (laughs) man, dress blues are for another day. You and I are supposed to put on the fatigues, ready for whatever this world throws at us and whatever battle or journey that we are in the middle of. Cut some folks some slack. Dress ready for the struggle because that's where we are is in the middle of a struggle. Be sympathetic that the challenges of this life are real. Secondly, I would tell you be grateful. Be grateful that we have a God who hears and intervenes. We have a God who hears and intervenes you know, every week when I study the passage, I always have a thing that I find, well, that's the most surprising thing I found this week. I didn't expect to see that coming. This week's Tim was surprised by, it says that the people of God grumbled and God heard them. You know, when I'm, when I'm reading that, I would hear, the people of God grumbled, and so God turned his back and said, I'm tired of that. What I would expect is to say, the people of God prayed, and God heard them. But that's not what it says. It says that the people of God grumbled, and God heard their grumbling. Hear me, hear me. This is not a pro-grumbling sermon. But it's a pro-God sermon. Because I want you to know that even when you are not at your most spiritual, even when you're struggling, even when you're limping, Even maybe when you're grumbling and you're complaining, our God hears us. In fact, if you go all the way back to Exodus chapter 2, remember we spent some time talking about that place where the people of God really grumbled. It says that they groaned, and they cried out, and they shrieked. And they called upon God, but but even as we looked at that, it was as though God overheard what they were saying under their breath. And even when the people are grumbling and complaining and quarreling and making Moses feel like they might kill him, our God hears them. Not because they're spiritually mature, but because he loves them. Because he has a plan for them. Because he wants to pour goodness over their lives. You see, if the Israelites get anything wrong in this passage, and they do, it is that they keep saying to Moses and to God, the only reason God brought us out here is to kill us. No, no. The reason God brought them there was to bless them. The reason that God brought them there was to bless them because he loved them and had a plan for their life. When Jesus walks through his ministry, one of the most common phrases that we see is that Jesus was stirred with compassion. Not because he came face to face with all of these people with great faith. No, he was stirred with compassion because he came face to face with people with great hurt. And he loved them. And he had a plan for them. And so even as the people grumbled, which is not the best form of prayer. If we got credit for prayer every time we grumbled, man, would we be spiritual. But even at our spiritual immaturity and brokenness, he hears us and he intervenes. Man, you should write that down. That's really, really great. Be grateful that we have a God who hears and intervenes. And then I would tell you that I would encourage you to be open to what God wants to do in your life. Be open to what God wants to do in your life. Now listen, the people, they whined. They wouldn't have been a lot of fun to have dinner with. They groaned and they complained. You only brought us out here to kill us and our children and our livestock. One of the things they said is, oh man, I wish God would have killed us back in Egypt where they were moaning and groaning already. I wish God would have killed us back in Egypt where we sat by our, our meat pots and had our fill of bread. It's like they were at Tiger Stadium tailgating. It was more food than we could possibly imagine. It was fantastic. It was like Thanksgiving. It was the best ever. No, 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 it wasn't the best ever. But God wants to move you to what's good and great. And we have a God who hears us and a God who intervenes. We just have to be open to it. Now the thing about it is, God's intervention was different every time. One time the water was bitter and Moses threw a log in. That was a one-time deal. Another time that they came to the place where there were 12 springs and the 70 palm trees. That was a one-time deal. And There was another time that they were hungry and God sends the, the wind that knocks the quail down on a daily basis and he gives them manna. It was a 40-year deal, but it's over. And he doesn't do that anymore. Another time they come to another time when there is no water. And God tells Moses to hit the rock, and the water comes out of the rock. Another time that we don't look at in this passage, they come to another rock, and God says, speak to the rock. Moses runs into a little trouble because he, he's not listening, and he hits the rock. But God hears, and he intervenes. But what he does in our life is different every time, and it's different for every person, it's different for every season. But what you need to know is that God is, wants to be a work in your life if you will let him. Earlier this week I was having breakfast uh, with Joe Luna. Uh, Joe is a minister on the campus at Southeastern with the Baptist Collegiate uh, Ministries. We're grateful that he's part of our church but we're grateful for the work that he does and Joe and I were just uh, we were just talking but as he began to tell some pieces of his story that I didn't know. I said man that, that's that's Sunday's message. That's Sunday's passage. So, Joe, tell us about a few moments in the wilderness that you've had.
1: So I wanted to share with you guys two passages of Scripture uh, before I share a little bit about my story. The, and one is Romans eight twenty-eight through 29, and I know we, a lot of us know this one. It says, And we know that the, for, for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers." These words are so hollow sometimes to somebody who is going through trauma and somebody who is going through, through very difficult times. Um, when I was a senior in college, uh, I was just starting my senior year when Hurricane Katrina hit. Um, my mom had already been in the hospital uh, for a couple of months, um, and she wasn't doing very well. And when Hurricane Katrina hit, uh, they moved her to a hospital in Baton Rouge. We didn't know where she was uh, for a couple of weeks after the hurricane had hit. And so I had grown up in church. I had grown up, um, you know, hearing about God and hearing about the goodness of God. And this, these incidents really threw me into a, a tailspin with my faith, I guess you could say. Uh, how could a good God, and I'm sure many of us have heard this this before. How could a good God allow very difficult things in life to happen? And so like Pastor Tim has been saying, I was grumbling. I was not just grumbling, I was angry. Um, I had been going to BCM on campus for a couple of of years at that point. I had a lot of friends there. I had some friends at another student organization on campus um, that I was just getting to know. And uh, I remember some of those friends telling me, well you need to pray and you need to fast. Um, and you know pray that God will heal your mom and, and he'll do that and so I did I, I fasted for about two weeks uh, while my mom was in the hospital and lo and behold she eventually passed away and I went back to campus and I told my friends there uh, not the ones from BCM the ones from the other organization I told my friends that what had happened and, and they had told me if you had had enough faith if you would had more faith your mom would have been okay And so just being quite honest, I was done with Christianity at that point. Um, I did not want to admit it, and I did not want to admit it to the people that I knew because um, I had grown up in the Christian bubble. I had grown up uh, in church, and and all of my friends were Christians for the most part. Um, And so I just, I kept playing the game. And I was just, I was doing that. And finally I moved uh, out to New Mexico uh, the summer after my mom passed away because I just needed to get away. I needed to get away from everything. And it was at that point where I hadn't read Scripture in quite a while um, that I came across this passage of Scripture, just felt like I needed to read Scripture. And this is what I opened it to, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. This is Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, and lacking in nothing." And at that point I wept, because when I got to college, when I met people at BCM so many years ago, um, I noticed that a lot of them, most of them were my age or around my age, and they had a genuine faith. They genuinely seemed to love God. And so I had seen older people that had loved God, and, and that were desirous of that, but I had not really seen many people my age that were really passionate about God. And so I remember praying my freshman year of college, God, if you're real, give me this type of faith. And then so many years later, he had worked out his plan in a lot of different ways. I could stand up here for hours probably telling you all these different things, but God had worked it in such a way that he produced exactly what I was asking for in the way scripture says it will come about. And at that point I was like, man, I can trust scripture and I can trust this God and I can surrender my life to this God. And so I did that, and I praise God, He saved me at that point. But I want to share with you one more thing. and I know this was shorter than we had talked about, but it's because, as, as you are going through this, I want to share one other thing. Um, John 16:33 says, "I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world." And so we will have trouble. Right? We, we know that in scripture. I think the difference is, the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian, we will grumble, we will complain, but we will look for the ways that God is trying to refine us through these things. And that's why all of these things work together for good. And sometimes it takes us longer to come to those conclusions than others. And so I'm not saying that we necessarily have the capacity to dictate how long we go through these grumbling processes, but I do think God uses these for our good and sometimes it'll take longer for us to arrive at the at the opportunity to see that it's for our good. And so, skipping ahead, just a couple of years, when Amy and I moved out to Texas after we got married, um, you know, we we were there all by ourselves. We felt like God had called us to this mission. Um, and then, when we bought a house down there, uh, you know, it, they had dry cut granite in the house. It was a brand new house, and so we were trying to clean it up. Couldn't do it. And, researched how to do it and all this stuff about cancer came up and how it can be a carcinogen and you need to be careful and all these different types of things. And because of what had happened with my mom, I spiraled at that point. And I felt like God had brought us out there just to let us die, uh, to be quite honest. And I want to share with you, this is where I came across this as I wrap it up, 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9. uh, It says, for we want you to, we I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not upon ourselves, but on God who raised the dead. So God had, had, traumatized, had allowed trauma to come. I don't want to say he traumatized me, but he allowed trauma to come upon me in, in my senior year of college to bring me to a point of actually trusting him. And then after that, he sent us on mission to Texas, a little town where nobody had ever heard of. We had no community, nobody, uh, and I was grappling with depression. I felt that sentence of death within myself to make me rely on God, and God did some amazing things down there. And God taught me what it meant to minister to a community of people that 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 are unchurched, um, and then he, he equipped us to be able to do that. And, and on average, every year we saw thirty plus students come to know the Lord through what he had done. And I just want to close by going back to that passage where the second half of Romans eight twenty eight, where it says, "For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be firstborn among many uh, many brothers." These trials, these difficulties, these struggles that we face as believers are meant to conform us into the image of the Son. Because one of the things I tell our students all the time is you don't really know a person until you walk a mile in their shoes. I think the same is true of Christ. And Christ, Scripture calls Christ a man of sorrows, and not that he was always going through bad things, but he did go through his his fair share of bad things. And I think as we realize that, as we, we look to these things that God allows to happen, where we grumble, we can do one of two things. We can just grumble and complain, or we can look at it as an opportunity to be conformed into the image of the Son, and to, to redirect our eyes from the things and the disappointments in the world and put them back on Christ. Without these traumas, without these difficulties, I would not be able to relate to a generation that is struggling, grappling with depression. And so God is working these things out for good. And so I just want to encourage you in the grumblings that you're going through, Look for how God is going to use those to conform you into the image of the sun. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Joe, and we're grateful. Yes. We're grateful for your ministry on that campus, but we're also aware that every one of us can have that same kind of ministry because it's not just college students that are walking through those crises, but you and I rub shoulders whether we know it or not, with folks that are walking through those hard times. So how does this apply to our lives this morning? I would just suggest a handful of things. One, that we pray for and seek soft hearts. That we have a sensitivity to some of the hard things that other people are going through. We don't rank them. We don't decide whether they're a hard thing, should be a hard thing, whether their hard thing is a harder thing than you're going through or have been through. Because it's hard sometimes. So we become sympathetic people. We have soft hearts to the needs of people around us. Then we become a people of confident hearts because we have a God who hears us and who intervenes even when we're not at our most spiritually mature. But we have a God who will intervene and care for us, and today might be the day that He fights on your behalf, and all you have to do is be still and watch. Maybe that's today. Maybe it's tomorrow. Maybe it's a little bit down the road and around the bend. But you can walk through the wilderness with a confident heart, even as you crave a glass of water you have a God who hears and intervenes, and then for you to have a yielded heart, that maybe God's going to take you to some place or some circumstance that would never be on your list, but it's where He wants to grow you and to change you. So this morning, I pray that you'll have a soft heart, a confident heart, and a yielded heart.